Good evening and welcome back. I say that to those who were able to pick up the live stream this morning. My beginning place tonight, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30. Context. This is from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. I often say from God through Paul to the church at Corinth. And I think we know this was a troubled church. Much of the letter is remedial, corrective, admonitions and solutions from God through Paul to the church and for our edification today. In this part of the letter, Paul has written sharply about their abuse of the Lord's Supper. They were doing something that involved eating, but with such irreverence and disorder and disregard, Paul said, what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. As he deals with all this, he makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30. This will introduce what we're going to do tonight. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30, This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. There is no evidence that this is to be understood literally that because of their misconduct in this matter, they were getting physically weak and ill and some were dying. The context wouldn't justify that. Instead, the idea is they were spiritually weak and sick and some were moving towards spiritual death. Paul didn't want this to happen. This is not the only time in the Bible where one's spiritual condition is described figuratively within the imagery of illness. In Isaiah chapter 1, as the prophet convicts the people of Judah of their sin, listen to his description in Isaiah 1 verses 5 and 6. The context of this is the sin of the nation. Here's what God gave Isaiah to say, Isaiah 1, 5 and 6. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. They were sick spiritually. And we use this figurative language today. We use this kind of imagery. Sometimes when we hear of someone who is guilty of some evil, perhaps violence or some perversion, we respond by saying, that is sick. And we don't mean they need to go to the hospital. We mean they need what the great physician offers. They need to take their symptoms and condition to Jesus Christ and apply his remedy by the activity of faith and repentance. In repentance and obedience to Him, we can be made well, healed of spiritual illness. And then, in our continued obedience as a disciple of Christ, we can be in good spiritual health. And that's all the setup for what I want to do. I want to talk about four chronic conditions. This sermon becomes a spiritual health checkup. Nobody in this audience 
should minimize the value of maintaining good spiritual health and growing and thriving. Taking ourselves in for a checkup with our Bibles open. I hope this will happen as you listen to these things I've prepared to present tonight. Chronic conditions. Four chronic conditions. Number one, chronic complaining. The word chronic means persisting, repeated over a long period of time. We know people who are chronic asthmatics, and we hear of chronic heart disease, and that means the conditions persist, the symptoms reoccur, treatment is ongoing. But those people we know with these medical chronic conditions didn't choose them. There are people who have made the choice to be chronic complainers. Nothing is ever the way they want it. The weather, the government, their work conditions, the neighborhood, the church, chronic complaining. Not problem solving, not legitimate grievances, not the necessary and righteous exposure of wrong, just a habit of complaining. A few years ago, I found an article written by Tim Jennings, a good friend and gospel preacher. He wrote this for Focus magazine, and first, Tim gave some ideas from a book by John Gordon, The No Complaining Rule, very practical tips that have great value. Some things here that I need. I'm going to read these. Change the negative to a positive. When you catch yourself complaining, stop and say, but, and then add a positive thought. For example, I don't like driving an hour to work, but I'm thankful I can drive and I have a job. Apparently that wasn't written during a quarantine time. Focus on get to instead of have to. We say things like, I have to go to work, I have to mow the lawn, I have to pick up the kids. Instead, shift your perspective and realize you get to do these things. Focus on feeling blessed instead of stressed. Announce and arguing are complaining fast. Tell the people at work or your family or yourself, today I'm going to take a fast from arguing and complaining, zero, no tolerance. You just might see how much you do it. Turn complaining into solutions when truths do need to be expressed and behavior corrected. Take your concerns to the person who's responsible for it. Don't spread it around to everyone else. And then offer a few positive solutions to the concern. Don't just throw rocks, be a builder. That's from the book Tim quoted from by John Gordon. And those are good, but then Brother Jennings opened another book and he added these two thoughts, I think, that are superior to the others. Thank God more. Habitual arguing and complaining denies God's goodness. Thanksgiving prizes it. The more aware we are of God's goodness, the less we will see to complain about. 
find the good, and say thanks for it. And then memorize Philippians 2.14. Do all things without complaining and arguing. Tim says, post this verse on the hall of your home, on the wall of your heart. When your argumentative complaining spirit begins to emerge, tap that verse and say to yourself, not me, I'm going to shine like a light in the world. I'm thankful to Tim for helping us with chronic complaining. Number two, chronic procrastination. Chronic procrastination. Proverbs 27, 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Do you ever make a list either on paper or maybe just in your mind of things you believe you need to do and you discover in a day or two there was no follow-through. You had a good idea. <clears throat> there was a valuable project you believed needed some attention, and you wrote that down, and you formed an intention. And you even enjoyed thinking about it, and it created some motivation, but it died. Weeks or months later, your mind revisited that good intention and you had to give yourself some grief about it. I really need to get on that project. I should have done that. I'll do that. It slips away again. It happens to me. Maybe some of you are guilty. We're talking about something like New Year's resolutions that seem to slip away by the beginning of April. Where this really hurts us is when the intention or projection is something God expects us to do, and we put that off, <clears throat> and tomorrow never comes, similar to those businessmen in James 4, 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Sometimes we outwardly and vocally boast about what we're going to do tomorrow, and it doesn't happen. What does James say? All such boasting is evil. Chronic condition number three, spiritual fatigue. There are people who just never really get serious about being a Christian. I'm going to put it this way, and I'll explain further after a while. If the fork gets into the plate and captures the food, it never seems to be lifted to the mouth. I'll explain that imagery in a few minutes. I'm talking about people who were baptized, taught from the word about the various duties that should follow baptism. They know they ought to do certain things and be involved in good work and help others and be active in the local church, and they know temptation can be resisted, 
They know about honesty and moral purity and praying and serving others. They just never take it seriously. Never change, never grow, never reach into the depth. Get serious about serving the Lord. You usually don't find these people listening to a live stream on Sunday evening. So why am I dealing with this to a Sunday night group of listeners? Because I don't want any of us to ever reach that low level of chronic spiritual laziness. Some of these people who are chronically spiritually fatigued once had good involvement. We must never deceive ourselves into thinking that our presence in a building or our digital listening keeps us safe in and of itself. It should lead to energy applied and good activity in our service to God. Now, that image I used a minute ago comes from Proverbs 26, 15. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. May each of us determine that from now until we die, we will continue to seek first the kingdom of God, abound in the work of the Lord, and the fork will not only capture the food, but bring it up to the mouth to nurture us in the things of God. And then number four, chronic friendship with the world. When you read the Bible and you see the word world, always check the context to see how that word is being used. Sometimes it is used in the sense of humanity. All people, God so loved the world. Sometimes the term is a reference to the physical world. In several passages, the word is used to identify everything around us that is hostile to God, everything that pulls us toward the earth and takes us away from heavenly treasure. The ideas, the enticements, the materialism, the sensual invitations, the language, the false practices of man-made religion. Here's an instructive passage in 1 John 2, 15-17. Do not love the world are the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Three phrases identifying the world in this passage, the desires of the flesh, the lust or desires of the eyes, pride in possessions. These are various temptation zones, right? Where we can stumble and move away from God. John identifies the danger of what I'm going to call romance with the world. And that becomes his warning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, <coughs> I want to, excuse me. <coughs> I want to explore that idea of romance, falling in love with this present world. 
Romance generally begins with flirting. And that means people are slowly moving toward each other, the initial steps of a permanent romantic relationship. The world is always flirting with us, appealing to us, showing us what is offered for our lust and consumption. So John's warning should be taken seriously in the early stages of that flirting. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Let me take that further. I shouldn't even let friendship with the world begin. James 4 and verse 4, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I'm afraid what can happen to us is we gradually edge toward the world and the things of this world. We don't jump right into what's wrong, but we ease our way in that direction, perhaps in entertainment, or in dress, or in language, a little compromise here, a step or two there. We don't go to the bar and get drunk and go home with someone. We just take little steps in the wrong direction. Chronic friendship with the world, dabbling around as close as we can, can become our spiritual death. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. I found this the other day. When we attend to this world, care for its cares, love it, please it, and serve it, we become not simply woefully misguided, but slaves to the world. Lutzer was right when he said, worldliness is uh, excluding God from our lives and therefore consciously or unconsciously accepting the values of a man-centered society. And worldliness is not only doing what is forbidden, but also wishing it were possible to do it. One of its distinctives is mental slavery to illegitimate pleasure. And that's in How in This World to Be Holy, that book by Edwin Lutzer, published in 1985. Let us never assume that because we use our time listening to a sermon on a Sunday night, we are safe from the world's influence. Check your spiritual health and take daily measures to avoid chronic friendship with the world. Now, here's where this kind of study must conclude. What if a doctor ran tests and came to you and said you have a chronic illness And then he leaves the room. And you're saying to the doctor, wait, wait. I want to know what can be done about this. What is the treatment? So as a preacher of the word, I must not only just expose sin, engage in some diagnostic work and leave the pulpit. What is the treatment? If you are chronically ill or beginning to exhibit symptoms which can Uh, can lead to spiritual death. The answer, the treatment, the remedy is the great physician. In Mark 2.17, 
Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus offered himself on the cross as the remedy for all spiritual disease. If I have a diagnosis, if I begin to exhibit any of the symptoms we have studied together tonight, if I open the Word of God and I've tested positive, the only cure is to turn my case over to the great physician. Trust him, obey him, follow him. Instead of loving the world, love the Word. Set your life under his authority and he will keep you safe from the chronic spiritual diseases that can make us sick and lead us to spiritual death. See, God in his word not only identifies the problem, telling us of the illness, God in his son offers the perfect remedy. We apply that remedy first in baptism, then we continue to apply that remedy by walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Well, I guess... You could stand and sing, but in this venue, I'll just say thank you and leave some comments for you. Stay safe, and may God bless you as you continue to pursue His wisdom in these difficult days. What we learn in this crisis, I hope we will use after this crisis is over. Thank you.